BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Now is the time to bring new ideas to your industry. And T-Mobile for Business has the advanced 5G solutions to make that happen. We're helping rethink patient-doctor interactions with real-time data sharing. We're tracking carbon with 5G sensors to help fight climate change. We're partnering with cities to connect roadways, cars, and drivers to minimize injuries. Disruptive thinking deserves a disruptive partner. So let's get started on what's next for your business. Step up your innovation at T-Mobile.com slash now. Hello, friends. Welcome to Unsiloed the show that busts the echo chambers. If you dig hearing opposing perspectives about big issues from a point of mutual respect, if you like debate but love light, not heat, welcome home. Jesus, had you seen this story on Pornhub that came down on Friday last week? Had you seen this before I mentioned it on LinkedIn? Uh, I had not, and, and uh, wait a minute, it's just, uh, yeah, I mean, to say that it's, uh, it's like sad and hilarious at the same time, if that, if that makes sense. There is, there's a bit uh, of a comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I honestly found out about it because I saw you post about it. Uh, and I kind of had a feeling that the second I saw you post about it, we were, we were going to talk about it. By the way, I, I got a ton of engagement on that one. I've been getting much better at my LinkedIn game uh, and my Twitter game, by the way. Um, and it, it's kind of like there's a voice for each one of the platforms. It's actually really interesting, but yeah, you know, LinkedIn tends to be self-congratulatory, congratulatory, or very promotional. Like, you know, I right, just, right, we right. just did this. We just, but my attitude is, um, a little bit of irreverence and pointing out like, you know, the thing that maybe people don't want to talk about or don't see. Yeah. Um, but I got a ton of engagement on this. I want to, I want to just share for 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 the audience the post itself because so here here's a story I guess for on first of all um, Pornhub which is the eighth largest website in the world bear in mind it is bigger than TikTok bigger than Amazon it's bigger than LinkedIn it's bigger than Reddit right so there's Google Facebook Insta a couple of players above it from an absolute standpoint it has 42 billion visits Asus. Mm. in 2020 and it averages 115 million visits a day all right so that company is actually owned by a parent company called MindGeek which is in and of itself interesting but they were acquired by a private equity uh firm called and this is my post right wait for it it's called Ethical Capital Partners and <laughs> I know we could just sit on that for a little uh, bit just, just let that let that resonate real quick yeah. Oh, uh, how mm. terrible is that? Uh-huh. Mm. Uh, and, and, and this company, Ethical Capital Partners, claims as rationale for the transaction of Pornhub, the company's, quote, foundation of trust, safety, and compliance. And so my comment on LinkedIn, and this is what got a lot of engagement, was that I feel like we've reached kind of an event horizon of language, you know? We're, we're sort of in the black hole where logic or decency can't escape from just the gravitational pull of money. 
and meaninglessness in 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 this category. So it, to me, that that was part of this, right? Which is just this absurd. And by the way, this company, this um, PE firm, I guess very recently sort of constituted itself. It's not like it's been around forever. Um, and the, you know, the people who are behind it have like all of this, you know, kind of cannabis background and all this other stuff. So it's, it's there's there's some stuff to talk about there. But but let's start with the this ethical capital partners and this acquisition. Now, I have huge points of view on Pornhub and I'm happy to get into it. But I guess let me let me start with asking you, where where are you in kind of the monetization of pornography? Because I honestly don't know. Yeah, I think it's a really tricky one, uh, honestly, because um, look, on the one hand, the one of the biggest issue that Pornhub recently has faced, I think there's two things. One is their CEO and maybe their COO are currently in, a, in have multiple lawsuits because of uh, uh, apparently, like profiting from child child sex abuse, basically based on content that was being uploaded, and that wasn't really being guarded well in terms of verifying the source, who was in it, etc. So there's been instances of that because they were allowing for basically user generated content to get uploaded. It creates that it just opens up the door for that kind of content to get to get in there eventually, right? Right. So there's an element of that that no matter how you dice it, and frankly, I don't know the intricacies of the lawsuit and where that ultimately is going to end up, but just taking a step back outside of the actual lawsuit, I don't know how anyone with any kind of, you know, make a fair argument of how we should be comfortable with that happening in any kind of scenario, right? When you have any kind of anything related with child sex abuse, anything related with rape, anything related with non-consent, there should be no scenario where that content, A, gets distributed this way in a very public forum like Pornhub or that gets mm. monetized in a way that is being monetized. So I think that by itself just makes this issue around Pornhub just very, very complicated because even if you want to have a pure, very purist kind of point of view or very libertarian point of view, right, which I probably come a little bit more on that from that perspective, it's just tough to rationalize that with the reality that this kind of content does exist this kind of content, even when there is good attempt, and I'm not even saying that they make good attempt, but I say, but even when there is good attempt, it's just hard to guard completely against that, right? Mm -hmm. So from that perspective, I just think it's, it's tough. It's tough to be in that industry. I think it's tough to monetize. Um, even if I have a very libertarian point of view, which in general, I have a little bit more in this ca in case. Like That's why I feel differently for something like Pornhub versus OnlyFans. I think in the case of OnlyFans, while we could, and I know you and I have talked about the fact that even in cases where people themselves are doing it, you know, they may be getting pressured uh, in a bunch of different ways to still do that, right? And and it's, it's hard for me to make that argument because you're right. Yeah. I think there's scenarios for that. But I think at least you can say in those cases, they themselves are the ones that are controlling to some extent what is getting posted, what's getting loaded, uh, as opposed to in a case like majority of the content is on Pornhub, which is basically, you know, these people that can go through the mill, right? They They get... You know, they get recruited, go through the mill, and then get dumped out of the other side. I think it's a very tough, tough industry, tough model. And um, it's really hard to fully support, even if you take a stance like I tend to stay, take on this, which is I'm a little bit more libertarian that for people that want to do that, and that's what they choose. Um, in some ways, I'm kind of okay with it, but I'm definitely not okay with any scenario where you're having these clear violations. You have these clear cases where... People are not giving consent, but people are underage and still being put through these kind of environments. And then people are profiting from those and then being acquired by, I'm sure, a whole bunch of money from this private equity firm 
that is uh that is going out and investing in this. I mean, I mean, how do you even like how do you even justify that to your LPs if you're a private equity firm? Like, like I, I have a really hard time of, of seeing like how are they looking at this deal, being like, yeah, we're we're cool with that. Like, let's let's go ahead and do that. I think that you know it depends on what your what your objectives are and what your motives are. I think there's plenty of people out there who it's really just about hey, is there a monetization opportunity here? And PE firms, for the most part, tend to look at um, kind of under leveraged assets, right? It's a yeah. company that's been doing well but maybe they've had their heyday uh, and there's a chance to kind of polish it and pr you know prop it up and get a, a better valuation for it. So they're kind of like turnaround minded, right? Mm. Or maybe not even turnarounds. It's like uh, underutilized. It's underutilized um, to go with, to think about it. Yeah, underutilized, right? So that's kind of their orientation. Look, I, I've talked about it on my other show, but I don't think I've ever mentioned it here. I am what people call a, a recovering pornography addict. Now, uh, thankfully, I've been free of pornography for now 13 years, but there was a time when I was a daily pornography user. And I can just, you know, measure my own, uh, you know, distaste for this subject just based on the changes I've seen in my own life ever mm. since I stopped, I stopped doing it. But look, I think you're right about everything you've said, although you're, you're still kind of maybe approaching it from a business standpoint, right? It's hard to do. It's tough to ra rationalize to your LPs. There's legal issues. Mm -hmm. There's all this other stuff. And and I agree with all of that. I think all of those things are the reasons not to do it. I have three reasons why I think this is um, anything that supports, advances, or uh, you know tries to do a turnaround story on Pornhub is bad for the world. Number one, I think I have a practical reason for it. I think in general, we've talked a little bit about this. I think we kind of live in a pornified society, right? I think we, th those are things that promote sexual objectification, right? And when you, when, when we're in that kind of sex sells mindset, which is everywhere. I mean, we've heard that expression mm -hmm. in advertising our entire careers, right? But what happens to a, a world, a society that commercializes sex is that sex becomes very separated from humans, from real people and becomes a commodity. That's basically the bottom line. And so it, it, it's no more valuable than basically the product that it's advancing or pushing. And it leads to just a ton of bad actors, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a very practical reason why I, I'm against it. That's one. On a personal level, you know, I know former sex workers, as we're now calling them, right? Uh, formerly trafficked people. And many that didn't even know, frankly, at the time that they were being trafficked because they had a boyfriend that was really nice and, you know, he said, do this and it's only once. And next thing you know, it's been 10 years and they're on like 50 films, right? And there's also, I know people who've also been involved in um, survival sex. So basically, you know, they don't have a place to live and they hook up with somebody because they can have a place to live and they deal with whatever the abuses are that they deal with in that regard. So I, I know personally, you know, people have been involved. And is that every single person who stars in pornography? No, there's always going to be an outlier and exception. But for the most part, I, I've got enough experience knowing that like it's it's not a good scene. And then it, the, it's the, just so it's just mm -hmm. so ripe for abuse is the problem, right? That no matter how you cut it, even if you want to say that you want to take the most ethical view of the, view of this, it's just yeah. I just think this. There's just so many cases where people could just take advantage of people that are in dire circumstances. I mean, that Absolutely. I totally get. I mean, it's, it's that's that's the part that's really hard to justify. And the, and, and the last reason, you know, are religious reasons, but they're very similar the, to the previous ones I mentioned. The, the bottom line is that it kind of does a lot of injury to the dignity of the people who are involved in it, the actors, the vendors, the public, because each one of them is basically an object. 
and that's just not good for the world. So, so everything you know that I that I know of, practical, professional, et cetera, legal. To your point that you brought up, business wise, like all those things, point against this being just really a a, a bad move. Now, the company that's doing it is Canadian. Uh, and I don't know, it, it, is Pornhub Canadian too, or just the PE firm is Canadian? No, I actually no idea. Research yeah, that. no idea. Yeah. So it's not happening here, but this is a global yeah. uh, juggernaut, right? In terms of engagement and, and they, they, didn't, they, didn't they once uh, make a, like they put in a bid to, uh, for the naming rights of the Miami Heat Stadium? Yes. Oh, yeah. Right. For the, for the arena. And yeah, that was a couple of years know, ago, maybe. Yeah. And they, and they do have a lot of, like, there's, you know, the platforms restrict them, like Instagram restricts them. Like, there's a lot of people who don't just because of their, in fact, I went on ChatGPT and I and I asked for a definition of pornography and it said, like, my, you know, protocols don't allow me to talk about porn. I was like, I'm not asking for you to do porn. I'm just asking for you to define it. So, so, so there, there are, uh, there are guardrails, you know, yeah. around it. But what do you, I mean, what, again, the, the, this the, is the, the, the tricky mm-hmm. part. So look, everything you say, I, you said, I don't disagree with. I don't. The, the challenge, though, comes down to the, the thing, two main things. One is still the value of individual choice, right? Sure. And how much, you know, we want government and otherwise restricting that. And number two is like this idea of, of monetizing sex, whether it's actual or implied, like where do you draw that line. I mean, that, that is a challenge, right? Because you're right. Like so much of, of what happens right now is already monetizing sexuality, monetizing of kind of the, how people look. And, and, you know, if you want to make an argument for things like porn, at least they're being upfront of what it actually is. They're not trying to hide it or, or pretend like it's something else. Like it is what it is. In many cases, we, that happens all the time, uh, but it's more implied, even if it's very much in your face. And that does become like a, I think a a line that you got to figure out like where to draw, what to draw it. I think that to me the the part where maybe I would focus more on is how do you knowing that this is an industry that has been around literally since the beginning of time. While we think about how you know just the way we as humans are, how do you in this day and age with the technology that we have, with the level of legislative ability that we have, how do we better protect the most at-risk people from not being abused through this process, right? Mm. And then going, and then really taking that as the angle rather than saying this shouldn't exist at all because prostitution was not invented in this century, right? Like that has been going around no question ever. And yeah, frankly, since there's it's been gonna, people. And it's, it's going to continue to go on. I mean, that's just, it just, it, I mean, it's part of human nature to some extent. And um, that's true. But so, in a sense so that's that, why I kind of like, you know, I think of it more from that perspective, like, like what can you do there? Yeah, I, I think it's a good question. I, I think that the answer is a multi-pronged solution, like all things. I don't think that there's one silver bullet. Part of it is to let people sort of recognize the damage. So, you know, there's an educational component to it. Part of it might be to, um, you know, uh, restrict or have proper or more policy and legislative guard guardrails around things like this, especially in uh, in the case of Pornhub, a lot of the things like you mentioned in terms of the lawsuits and things against him have been for absolutely egregious things. I mean, we're talking yeah. about, you know, so-and-so got canceled on Twitter for like saying he didn't like <clears throat> Trump or Biden. We're right. talking about one example is of a 14-year-old. Her name was Rose Kalemba, who was raped, literally raped. And the video was up on Pornhub for six months. It yeah, wasn't until a video, yeah. it wasn't until a video uh, called Trafficking Hub, which by the way, one of the producers of Trafficking, Trafficking Hub, 
the video that kind of broke this wide open, commented on my post on LinkedIn and wants to come on the show, just so you know. So, oh, um, but, but it is, wasn't is until that, that the, was- Is that the, mm-hmm. the Netflix special that is, that is on right now? No, there was two things. There's a documentary on Pornhub that's separate. This is another video that was backed by uh, an organization which itself we've talked about. It's called Exodus. Uh, what's it called? Exodus Now or Exodus? Mm. So, uh, it, there's an organization that's like a, um, a, a, a human trafficking victim rights organization mm-hmm. that has a ton of backers and has been creating content around this issue and others for a long time. And they came up in a story a long time ago that we did with, um, what's her name? The actress, uh, Amy Schumer, maybe? What's her name? The comedian, where we talked about she was she had some complaint against this company because I forget exactly the circumstances, but mm. they've been around for a while. And um, anyway, they produced a video, put it on YouTube called Trafficking Hub, and it got like a gazillion views. And mm-hmm. it wasn't until that video was posted that this particular um, uh, rape of a 14-year-old was taken down. It was taken down instantly. It had been up for half a year. So you've got all of these gradations of stuff, some of which is so outlandish and ridiculous that I think all people of goodwill can agree on it. But I don't think a solution to your original question is like, there's one thing. I think we have to reacquaint people with like, you know, people are, human dignity is an example. Like people are good. They're worth protecting. Things that are violent or, or objectifying are bad. Like that's one step. Other step is, well, what technological solutions do we have? Other step might be, what other legal, legal uh, recourse do we have? Other steps might be, you know, how do we help people who are victimized? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the, so there's a variety of different ways to to attack this. But I just, I, I just can't help but look at this and 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 just really feel again bad for everybody involved in this, because at the end of the day, to me, it's this is not something that's good for the world. And we're, you know, basically looking at it like it's the it's another startup. And how do we? How do we kind of monetize it and, and do all these different things? If I recall correctly, Section 230 does not apply in this case, right? Because of because of the, the, the type of content that we're talking about. Like in this case, they're not shielded the way most uh, internet companies would be in that user-generated content that gets submitted. Like they actually are liable for anything that, that gets that gets put put on there because of because of it is associated with anything like like either rape or, or underage children would be, um, I think, excluded from from that policy. I mean, honestly, what most of these things what needs to happen is people need to go to jail. You know, yeah. if you're talking about a CEO that goes to jail and like leadership, right? Even this private equity company, if you're able to go after individuals, not just pay fines, but go after individuals and put people in, in jail because of these egregious situation where we're not protecting, once again, the most uh, at-risk people. Vulnerable. Uh, yeah. The most vulnerable. Then I think that's the way you start to solve for it. You know, in some ways, though, I mean, I do think about that, you know, it's part of the reason why these things continue to grow and become so, like, massive. It's like it's kind of like the, the secret thing that, obviously, a lot of people are doing. And in, and in many ways, because we also tend to, in general, as a society, kind of demonize sex to begin with. So mm. people still have these outlets. It's still part of human nature, and they end up going to these places that are not great because they can't be more openly discussed, shared engage with in other in other places right i mean i I think that's one of the challenges i think would also i don't know i think we need to look at it i don't even think section 230 qualifies here because this company MindGeek is not american so i mean international things might apply but i don't know if that one would although they do have offices predictably in los angeles but they're headquartered in luxembourg i just looked Mm. it up 
So, um, and they've got offices in London and Montreal, Bucharest, et cetera. But, um, so I don't think that that would actually apply. But I think even if it was, I think it's excluded because of the, uh, the type of content that we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. You, you might be right. Yeah. So what, people need to go to jail. People go to, I mean, that's what it is. I, I mean, that's ask you, yeah, what's your bottom, my, what's your my bottom, bottom line? line is you, you solve this the moment people start going to jail. Like mm. when you have senior, senior leadership have to go to jail. That's what actually changes things. That's what changes policy. That's what changes procedure. I mean, you think about, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the banking system, right? But you think about someone like Enron, right? Massive changes happen when people start actually going to jail for fraud, right? Like mm -hmm. that's when you start really seeing, like people start taking it much seriously. If you're able to still be shielded by corporation or is sort of tied to a fine, these companies have so much audience, are making so much money that I think it's not enough. I don't think that's gonna actually gonna yeah. change behavior. Uh, so yeah. that that would be my my suggestion of how to be able to start addressing this, make some real change happen. Yeah, I think I might latch my uh, my wagon to your uh, to your train there. I think that that's definitely part of the solution. I think the other part of it is, you know, hearing the stories of people who have been impacted by this. I've heard them just by virtue of some of the work that me and my wife do, but not everybody has. And so, really hearing the other side, it's not all you know glitz and the privacy of your own home. There are real humans that are involved in this. And the more aware we become of their stories, the better able we're actually to look at this issue in the proper way. So um, anyway, I'm sure there'll be more to talk about with that. Um, I sent you another article from one of my new uh, favorite websites, which is, oh, by the way, the name of the, the organization I was thinking about for this, Exodus Cry. Do you remember that at all? We talked about it with that Amy. Amy. Yeah, where she had to like apologize or something for exactly. Supported. Yeah, I, I vaguely remember what it was, but yeah, yeah. Anyway, the people from Exodus Cry want to come on the show because of my LinkedIn post. So, see, so yeah, nice. I started something there. But anyway, right. let's 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 change gears a little bit. So, I sent you from one of my favorite news sites, Visual Capitalist. Um, if, if you haven't gone to that site, you should. It's it's kind of like yeah, it's I'll a great site for it. just for just visualizing all kinds of data. And specifically, this was a visualization of minimum wage around the world. So it's a, mm -hmm. you know, kind of a heat map thing and it lays out, you know, the, the, the globe essentially. And it, and it basically uh, takes each of the countries and um, represents the monthly minimum wage of a full-time worker and sets all of the figures net of taxes and in US dollars. So it's a real kind of apples to apples mm. comparison. Mm -hmm. of of what the world looks like in terms of minimum wage. I know you and I have talked about minimum wage. I know you've mm -hmm. definitely got opinions on minimum wage. My point of view is still developing, but um, mm -hmm. but I thought it was interesting. There was a couple things, or actually, I, I start with you. Is there anything in particular that jumped out at this visualization? And we'll include these links in the show notes so people yeah. can check out these maps, but anything that jumped out at you immediately when you saw this? Yeah, the, I mean, there's obviously a huge contrast between the U.S., minimum wage versus minimum wage of pretty much every country, right? Because I believe outside of Australia, who is at about $2,000, I guess, is this a, a minimum, is it a, a, month. a month? A month, right? Month. Yeah. A month versus fifteen fifty, which is what, 1550 for the US. I think pretty much everyone else is underneath. Uh, maybe, uh, I guess I guess Germany and Australia are the two that are above. Germany slightly above at 1594, and then Australia at 2022, which is actually... Relatively speaking, is a lot higher actually. If you think about it that way. But Ironically, we're, we're, Jesus, just as a as a quick note, Luxembourg, which is where the headquarters of of uh, Pornhub uh, is, is the highest minimum wage. Oh, I didn't in even the world. see it. Yeah, yeah, in I just the world. Saw, I just saw it right now. Yeah, yeah. Right, yep. it's, called, it's actually Ireland. I guess is that is that what that is? I can't. 
And then uh, Luxembourg. Yeah, Luxembourg is number one. Um, yeah, there's a few uh, others. So yeah, I number two I, is Australia. To yeah, your point, there's a couple of there's a couple of other folks there that are that are you know above the U.S. But obviously, U.S. U.S. will be at the very top. What struck me the most is actually all of the countries that don't say anything. It's just gray. That's right. Like that, I think is the more like all of Africa. Scarier thing for two me. Countries. Yeah, exactly. Is that you have a number of. Uh, you have a number of things that are that are or a number of countries that are that are not even uh, listed at all mm -hmm. uh, as having any kind of minimum wage. So that kind of speaks to the situation that you have in these countries that there's such uh, an inconsistency in being able, even be able to generate any income that you don't even right. have an average. I mean that's I mean that's scary, uh, and you see that in like most of the continent of Africa and in a number of places, especially Central America is mm -hmm. a big area, and then some parts of South America. Now, let me ask you, because one of the pre presuppositions here is that where there's a higher cost of living, it means a higher minimum wage is required. And that kind of follows, right? It's just more expensive to live there. So you can make the case of the differences between the U.S. and, say, Brazil. As an example, Brazil is $232 a month is the minimum wage. In the U.S., it's, to your earlier point, $1,500 a month. So it's, you know, uh, what is that, 6X, 7X? Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you would say, well, it's seven X more expensive to live in the U S so it kind of follows that it, that it is, but I, I'm just curious as to like how you view that, how you view the minimum wage, um, you know, kind of being, I guess, a solve for the a federal minimum wage being a solve for things. Right. So I'll give you an example of what mm -hmm. I mean. Right. So in the U S there's nowhere, no state in the country where you can buy a home if you're on minimum wage. The average salary required in the United States across the entire country, which is like a worthless stat because it depends where you live, but the average number is $78,000. The minimum wage, if you worked all year, gets you to $35,000 uh, $35, at the highest level, which is like California, $15.50. Mm -hmm. So the minimum wage can never solve for you actually owning a home. So if we increased it to 20, it wouldn't address that. Now, I know people rent and do other things. So, you know, they have roommates and whatever. But just if you're using home ownership, which is pretty important for uh, accumulating wealth and developing wealth over time, especially handing it off to another generation, does how do you yeah, view the minimum I, I wage I don't being you, able to solve that or do you not? I think you don't. Uh, the reality is I think it's too big of a gap to try to solve for through minimum wage. Uh, in my opinion, minimum wage really should be looked at as what is the minimum, almost like an MVP, what is the minimal viable income like mm. <laughs> someone needs to be able to have just to be MBI. able to, to live, just to not be homeless, right? Like Because the problem that I think of when I see some of these, some of these wages is like how many people are currently make, working full time, making minimum wage, and then having to be homeless because they can't even afford to live anywhere. Absolutely. Right. So I think we, if we think about in terms of home ownership, that is that is too much of too much of an ask. I think to say that it, with just pure minimum wage, someone should be able to own a home. Uh, I think there the reality is you have to have, you know, some ability to either you know go beyond minimum wage. You're going to have in most cases multiple uh, uh, people in the household working, um, and maybe it's a combination. If you get two of them, maybe there you, you kind of get get enough. But, but I think that's the part that we really have not solved for. I think the issue that we have is we're in a situation as a country that in many places, including California, people are working. And it's not people are lazy or they're just not working. They're working full time. And you know it better than anyone, Charlie, is uh, these people that are having to live on people's couches, 
living in their cars, just in this constant situation they of have trying jobs. to figure out. And that they employed, almost all have jobs. Like yeah. that's crazy. And crazy. They, and they're they're employed, right? Like that is the I think the, the the big the big challenge. So I'm actually a big big fan of of thinking about having a more universal basic income that mm -hmm. will give people the ability to be able to sustain themselves enough to be able to work. You can create incentives. You can create ways to make sure that people are not taking advantage of the, of the system. But by actually having people being able to to live and be able, it actually just adds more money into the economy in general. Because look, we saw it even in the, it, during COVID when people were getting the the the, the COVID the PPP stuff and exactly yeah. is that you saw an increase in 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 purchases, right? An in, increase in in the purchase of all kinds of different goods, right? Because people put that money right back into the economy. Well, we'd love to say they're all going to save it. And that would be great. But the reality is when you're getting the basic income to be able to live, you're not getting enough money to put away. And it's mm. not like just getting, you're not like the old, uh, what's, what's the name of the Scrooge Duck or remember that old oh, cartoon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're, you're not sitting there like Mc, a pile yeah, yeah. of gold. Like that's not what this is, you know? And it is a really big, big difference that you're seeing here. I, I think to your point though, the one thing I was also reacting to is that when you look at our minimum wage as a country, yes, it is tied to cost of living. But when you when you look at the other countries that have a higher minimum wage, do you think that's because their cost of living really is that much higher than the U.S.? Like, I don't think so. I mean, with Australia, New Zealand, are these places that is more expensive to live than the U.S. in general? I kind of doubt it, no? Yeah, I mean, I, I think Australia, U.S. would be a good comparison. And I would say that the difference there is... I mean, U.K. Is... maybe. U.K. maybe. I think that's 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 maybe, right? Yeah, but Australia is of similar size geographically and similar similar variation economically to match it with the U.S. When you compare the U.S. with the U.K., I mean, most of the population in the U.K. is in major urban areas where, where yes, we have that same dynamic too, but we have a lot of people who don't live anywhere near major urban areas, and I don't think that it's right. as good a comparison. The Australian one is, and to your point, they're doing far better in the area of minimum wage, and so what explains that? I don't know. Yeah. Look, I think for me, this question breaks also on, you know, philosophical grounds, right? If you're of the very libertarian bent, it's like, you know what, employers should recognize the value of the employees, let the market decide, try not to impose any of these kind of minimums. On the other side, you want to kind of centralize things and the, you know, universal basic income is a very interesting idea. I worry about you know, it being implemented by people who would implement it across the board without any variation or any pro rata, depending on where in the country you live and what your needs are, so that it ends up being a boon for some people and absolutely nothing for others. So there's people on the other side of the argument who would say, no, we, you know, the, the federal government, we have to centralize all this. So I think it kind of breaks on on that. For me, I agree with you. I think people need a living wage. I think that we have to look at that and and it's a combination of government actions as well as other private sector actions that have to happen all together. But I think the thing I worry about is putting so much emphasis on a federal minimum wage that it's almost like a, like a silver bullet, like this is going to solve it, where I think the problem is just significantly greater than just that. I think that is like, that gets you to, again, 35 grand in a country where it takes $80,000 minimum to own a home. And I'm not talking about a palatial estate, anything that's a home, Right. So it's just it's just like at the edges, right? We've had this conversation before. Is it better than nothing? Yeah, it is. Does it actually solve? Probably it doesn't. There's got to be other solutions to it. So anyway, that's kind of my bottom line. I do have one other point, but go ahead. Say what you're going to say. I mean, it's just that the, I mean, but we have, 
proof points that it does work, Charlie, right? We have the child tax credit that happened in 2020 that, at least according to the census, it, it contributed to a 46% decline in child poverty, mm. right? Since 2020, like that's, that is massive for those, for, those, for those kids, right? And that's, I mean, at the end of the day, when people have more money to be able to spend, and once again, it's not like people are taking that and, and saving it, which I wish that was hoarding actually the case, hoarding it. Like, right. it's not the actual case. People are using it, turning right back to invest in the, a lot of the small uh, businesses, right? Mom and pop businesses, restaurants, groceries, things that actually help further the, the economy forward. I just, I have a hard time. Maybe, look, maybe that's the only thing about that's it. Like, true. do it around kids. Fine. Yeah. Maybe, maybe yeah. do it just on kids. Perfect. I'm look, okay with all that. The, all of these government interventions have positive effects, I'm convinced, and I've seen them. They also have implications, which I've also seen, mm -hmm. right? I work with a lot of families who spend nine to five being homeless because of all the bureaucracy, red tape. Every time there's a new law, it creates a new process, and they can never break three, free of it because it's just they're just trapped in this vortex mm -hmm. of bureaucracy yeah. created by a lot of these things. So I think we just have to recognize that for every good, there's also, there may be two or three implications. That's why I, when I look at government intervention, to me, it's never the silver bullet. It's never only that, that solution. Although I'm right, not right. against government yeah. intervention at all. I think that that's part of government's job is to ensure that your society is actually thriving. So there needs to be government, gov government intervention, but it just can't be like, oh, if we do this, that's it. Because there's a deeper right. thing that we need to solve. Yeah. By the sure. way, the, the, the other point that I want to mention is, is because I looked at this map, I thought, you know, all of the, the dark colored ones are the ones with the higher minimum wage. I wanted to kind of overlay to this a stat that would show like happiness or satisfaction or something like that to see how it compared. Mm -hmm. You know, does more money equal a better life? I couldn't mm -hmm. find an exact thing, but it is worth mentioning that I did look at the 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 highest suicidality, okay, uh -huh. and the top ten lowest countries, uh, you know, countries like Barbados, Jordan, Honduras, the Philippines, they don't in some cases don't even rank on this map. Right. The only one that I could find is the Philippines, one hundred and forty one dollars a month, uh, in terms of uh, minimum wage, and they have uh, they're number nine in terms of the lowest suicide rate in the world. Yeah, so yeah. not perfect, but you know, more money, more problems, as they say. Yeah, I think the only two that probably will stand out to me that I, th I think usually rank pretty high is uh, Belgium and Netherlands uh, mm. in terms of of happiness, like a happiness yeah. index. So those are the two that will and the Scandinavian countries too, and they rank and they rank pretty high here as well, right? So that that will be maybe the the two. But yeah, look, and also in some cases, it is a more money, more problems because in order for you to generate more income. It also means more stress and, and you know, working more hours and all of that, right? So these, these things are actually tied to each other, to, to your point. All right. Um, final topic, Jesus, is we're back on uh, Silicon Valley Bank. I sent you an article which was, uh, I thought, very worth the discussion. The, the, the headline of the article, um, it's a Fox, News, uh, Fox Business News uh, article. It says, Silicon Valley Bank had no official chief, chief risk officer ahead of collapse, but employed DEI executive. Now, obviously the point here that's being suggested, if not directly stated, Speed is di that- Directly stated, not suggested yeah, at all. Yeah, it, it, well, I mean, yeah, it's a statement of fact, but yeah. it's definitely being inferred that it was a, that's, it's a reason that led to the collapse. That's the yeah. inference that I'm referring to. 
Um, but you know, the inference is that, you know, here you are, you're a bank that had a massive crash, basically went bankrupt a couple of weeks ago. And basically for nine months of 2022, leading up to this collapse, you did not have a, a chief risk officer, which in a bank is a pretty big deal. And yet you did have time, et cetera, to invest in diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, uh, things for, you know, that's kind of meat for the base for people who are very much against DEI. They're like, see, you know, told you, like, you know, we're, we're focusing in the wrong place. Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, uh, it is true that if you kind of go back in time, right, just to do a little bit of kind of uh, back browsing here, January of 2020, SVB, this bank, had $55 billion in customer deposits on its balance sheet. By the end of last year, Jesus, that number had gone up to $186 billion. And yet, literally a month after the end of the, or uh, yeah, kind of at the end of the year last year, but certainly in January, all the warning signs were very clear and this thing came crashing down um, in March. And for uh, for nine months of 2022, they did not have a chief risk officer. They hired one in January. And of course that person had like an eight week run before they had to go look for another job. So what does this say, if anything, about SVP, either it's collapse, it's priorities, et cetera. I, I think this is, uh, to me, it says nothing about SVP. Well, it says one thing, which is the, the not having a chief risk officer just speaks to the number of mistakes that the leadership has made in terms of how they ran their bank. Well, but, it, but it's, I mean, there's so much about this headline that to me is just, it's, it's, it's so, hey, I mean, everyone can pretty much assume where that came from, was Fox News. And frankly, that headline could have, could, have, could have been written to say, banks can't walk and chew gum at the same time. Like, it, putting that contrast between having a chief, uh, chief diversity officer and then not having a risk officer is, like, one, like, it speaks to the fact that, yes, they obviously made tons of mistakes in how to run the bank, but having a, a diversity officer has nothing to do with them not having a risk officer. Like, that is a, a mistake on its own. I don't think those two things are correlated. It's It seems like the kind of comparison that is basically tapped into culture wars altogether. What they can be talking about is all of the issues that this bank did and how the poor investments that they made, right? Long, very long-term investments with rising rates, right? That made that made that's going to be harder to get that get that capital back. I'll make it very accessible for people to get their money out. That combination is what dooms Silicon Valley Bank. In addition to a complete overreaction by the market, that mm. was spurred by a number of, of very specifically high-level VCs who called all their, their their portfolio companies to get money out, and also regulation that was put in place during the Trump administration that reduced the level of requirements that banks like SEB need to have by raising the minimum amount of assets that that was going to be looked at from like fifty billion to was it two hundred fifty billion? I think is what it was. I forgot what the, what the number was, but it was raised significantly. That have, by the way, have been put in place by Obama in response to the 2008 collapse that happened in the financial sector, not because of DEI. It wasn't even a thing. No even knew that. So that's when you when you connect these two things, like, well, so was this bank super diverse? Is that really the problem? Was that that was mm. definitely wasn't the problem in 2008? So mm. what what are we talking about? So you have to have a combination of de, of deregulation, you have a combination of a lot of like mistakes that was made by the leadership of this bank, including not filling this role, like. There's no justification for having that role be open for that long. But but let's be honest, we, even without that role there, like you still have a CEO, you still have a whole leadership team that 
that was basically being reached out by the way by the by the federal government say hey you are in a bad position right now you need to change this and they ignored it right that and also this overreaction i think happened in the market i think that's what basically the, it was the undoing of, of silicon valley bank because now you're looking at credit suisse as well as in, it's in trouble you have sure. all sure. these other banks that are in that similar similar situation and none of those have anything to do with being too too woke or too diverse to begin with the uh, the article points out in addition that in the 2023 proxy statement for SVB, it records more than 40 mentions of ESG, which is uh, environmental, social, and governance metrics. Right, where a lot of the kind of DEI type things, in addition to other ones for environmental uh, issues and governance, fall. Right, so lots of mentions of that, and. Again, the article claims less of a focus on the kind of risk management profile that you would think a bank would be paying attention to. So look, for me, bottom line, I agree with you. These things are, um, they're mutually exclusive. You can chew gum and walk at the same time. By the way, you can completely disagree with DNI and even run other things. You can have a, you know, an underwater basket weaving department and still be able to be a good bank. It doesn't make it <laughs> right. advisable, but right, it, it right. does mean you need a good bank. But yeah. in a world, Jesus, uh -huh. where you don't have a risk assessment lead, when that's like the most fundamental part of your business, I think it is an indictment of your leadership. I think it is an indi indictment of, uh, you know, maybe culture in terms of, of you know, oh, yeah, gaps, for sure. et cetera. Not having that officer is a, ma is a massive problem. Completely. We're conflating, but we're conflating right. things. It's like, it's like uh, you know, Silicon Valley Bank offered lunch and didn't have a chief risk officer. Did she, did she, that's why you don't offer lunch to your employees. Like, dude, what the fuck does one have to do with the other? Like, right. Yeah, yes. Let's, let's say, or, you know, they have an after work basketball league. Ah, oh, you know, that's what happened. That's, that's the, what they're in. Yeah, that's the reason why. That's the well, reason why. Like, come on. This is what's wrong with media today, my friend. But the, but the, problem, well, the problem with all of this, though, Charlie, and this is the, going back to, to me, what's the bottom line? Having a, by the way, a couple of things. One is, this is a case where government intervention did work very, very well, right? Mm -hmm. Because you, over a weekend, over a couple of days from a bank that basically went down in a, in a 24, 36 hour time window, time frame, um, that had left all of depositors basically like hanging there, like what's going to happen? And over, over two days, uh, the government came in, there was no panic there. We're going to back the the actual, uh, um, all of the depositors to make sure they're going to be access to, to, to their capital, right? Because protecting these kind of bank is super important. And look, I'm, yeah. I dealt with this directly. My my sports company was exactly impacted by this, right? We were sitting there on Friday, not knowing whether we were going to be able to make payroll. Like couldn't touch any of the of the cash in the bank, and which is a massive, massive problem, right? Went from having, you know, quite a bit of runway to like zero. Like it's, it's all over, over, over basically a day. Um, and the challenge is that this kind of lack of confidence in smaller banks leads us all to say like, well, we should just be, be uh, banking with these big banks, you know, four to five top banks. The problem with that is that the level of service just doesn't even compare. Yeah, like even there. now, I'm going through the process now, opening an account, Charlie, is like, you're one of a yeah, million no, trillion, people. Like, I'm especially serious. now. Especially For now. sure, dude. Like the level, the difference in service between... The response, the the kind of handholding that I was getting at Silicon Valley Bank, which is versus what I'm going through now, is night and day. Night and day. It's like it's yeah. such a big difference. And that's why these banks matter. Like having banks like this that are specifically focused on the startup communities matter a lot. And I really hope that with the move that just happened, that some version of these banks can continue. Because if we go to a world where all we're left with is the top three, four banks 
uh, the level of service, the cost that'll be that'll be uh, incurred by by the average banker uh, or people that are banking in, the, in, in them, the rest customer is going to be it's just going to go down acro across the board. Uh, I think and I think we're, we're worse off in general. This SVB to, had relationships with most of the startups, uh, you know, mm -hmm. in the country, and and by the way, most of the deposits were often from IPOs and SPAC deals, right? So they were very wedded to that community. But I think the bigger point, Jesus, is that banks that are deeply involved with communities, period, matter, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, one exactly. and that's where this idea of having a four-headed monster like Wells Fargo, Chase, J.P. Morgan, and 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 uh, and B of A is not a good world for people to live in, right? I, I'm going through this right now with our nonprofit where I'm looking for, um, uh, you know, asset lending options to borrow money against assets from the nonprofit. And I'm talking to a number of regional banks who actually have local nonprofit practices. I'm thinking, okay, these guys go away and I have to be on the 1-888 number to chase somebody. Like, I mean, it's never going to, like in a billion years, they're going to be like, what are you talking about? You're trying to pull yeah. $250,000. I got, I got Jamie Dimon on the phone. I got to go. So who yeah. wants to live in that world? Right. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. We need some of these smaller banks and, and, you know, look, I'm worried about a lot of these guys uh, moving into the future. By the way, if this thing had happened on Tuesday or Wednesday, I don't think that the government intervention would have mattered. The fact that they had that weekend, right? How fast it happened. It was like because the bank, everything was closed, right? Friday to Monday, mm -hmm. they were able to actually get this to happen. Well, so they, I do think they, that they, that, they froze mm -hmm. the accounts on Thursday. I mean, basically mm -hmm. by, by Thursday night, it was, you couldn't access anything. So there were people that were able to take money out, but we weren't. Like I tried and we weren't able to do it. So Friday was already off frozen. So it was even before the weekend, they had already kind of paused yeah. everything on purpose. Well, they pulled like 40, 42 billion on one day. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the, it was, I mean, it didn't take a lot of people to no. basically make calls to all the portfolio companies. If you're a portfolio company of a big venture fund, you you, you have to do that. Like, what are you going to mm. be the one that doesn't do it, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that combination um, is is a really created a lot, of, a lot of problems. I think the, the, the other conspiracy theory is a number of the people that were very vocal about this, about creating this panic, are also people that have large stakes in things like crypto, right? In other kind of vehicles that really benefit from people having less confidence in traditional banking. So that's the thing is going to be, we'll, we'll see how this plays out. It's going to be really interesting as you look forward uh, a few months from now, if there's any further investigation as to how this kind of came to be, whether it was any kind of foul play along, along the way. That's why I keep all my money in the mattress issues. It's the easiest yeah, thing to, to do. Just keep it right in the mattress there. It's good. That's, yeah. You, you, you got any courage or cringes this week? I know. Oh. I know. See, I, I know. I, I felt very prepared with the subjects <laughs> and everything, and then he throw me off with the courage or cringe. All right. So I, I, I've got I've got one quick cringe, and it's uh -huh. on Google's Google's launch of um, public launch of Bard, which is their. Uh, basically chat GDP, Bing, GPT, mm -hmm. uh, you know, counter offer. And the reason simply, I played around with it a little bit, but the reason simply is because it's just not as volatile. So it's a lot less fun. That's why it's a, it's a cringe for me. <laughs> In other words, you can't, you can't get it to, uh, to rethink its logic. You can't get it to, uh, you, you know, um, violate its protocols you can't get it to do the interesting things that are that have made all the news so it's 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 kind of a dry sort of version of chat gpt and it's just kind of boring i mean maybe that's the future and maybe that's a good thing that this thing be kind of boring 
But nevertheless, right now, sitting here comparing it to ChatGPT, which by the way, I got ChatGPT Pro um, uh, just a couple weeks ago, and it's 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 a game changer. It, it just seems funny. a little bit boring and a little bit less interesting. So that's my my cur- my cringe of the week is for uh, Google's Bard. <laughs> that's which, a funny one. The other thought of uh, I had about the name is how what percentage of people using Bard actually know that it's like named after you know a nickname for Shakespeare? Probably not uh, a lot. Yeah, I'm guessing none. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you know, some a, a couple cute people in marketing got a laugh out of it. So there you go. So there you go. Right. No, none that you can think of. Come on, you can come I up do. with something. I just, I was, I was you, very focused on the topics at hand. I just, yeah, yeah. All right, we'll give you, we'll give you a pass until uh, until next week uh, or week after, depending on when we record again. All right, well, my friends, if you're listening to our voices, that means it's time to share this episode. Subscribe, follow on Siloed. Do your best to help us to grow this show. It's all about conversation from different perspectives about important things. We hope you enjoyed it, and we'll see you again next time on Unsiloed. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.